Welcome, you're with Ian and Mike, and this is The Lubber's Hole, the podcast that explores the entire series of naval novels by Patrick O'Brien. If you're joining us having already enjoyed episodes one and two, thanks for coming back. It's great to have you with us again. And if you're picking it up for the first time, welcome aboard. We hope that you're going to feel at home right away. So, Mike, let's just think where we are in the series. We got finished last time with Master and Commander, right? Just paint, paint me a picture of where we've got to in the in the story so far of Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, Ian, what we did in Master and Commander, we got a lot of time on shore early on with, with Jack Aubrey, the the master and commander and Stephen Matcher and his physician friend meeting one another. Um, we watched their fortunes rise and fall and we followed a lot of action, but we also followed a lot of character development and a lot of story. And where did we leave our heroes? We got to the point where uh, Jack had been acquitted at his court martial for having had his uh, had his command, the Sophie, captured by the French. So Jack and Stephen are um, free but temporarily shipless, I guess, um, in the Mediterranean, in Gibraltar. And that, that was where we left them, presumably ready to head home. And that's where the action picks up, I think, at the beginning of, uh, of Post Captain. Yeah, and both of them, I, I guess, presuming their pockets to be, especially Jack's pockets, to be full of money from all the prizes that he's taken as... That, you know, his now lucky Jack Aubrey, as everybody calls him. Right. And having taken that big series of little coasting cargo vessels along the coast of Spain, um, he'd taken this big, uh, menacing French frigate, the Cacafuego. Um, and I think was pretty sure that that was him set financially for a, for a good while. Him and the rest of the crew, including Stephen Maturin, um, you know, all jangling coins, literally and figuratively in their pockets. So I, I understand, you know, as, as an Englishman that thinking about the nemesis, the English Navy, it would be the French frigate Cacafuego. But remind me again, was the Cacafuego French? This is Ian from the future. My good friend Mike's offering me the chance to correct my dumbass mistake, calling the Cacafuego a French frigate. And I'm going to completely tread all over it. Back to the show. Cacafuego was Spanish, and the, the story has it that because um, the uh, the Sophie had been preying particularly on Spanish traffic going along the coast between kind of Barcelona and Toulon, um, that Spanish merchants had commissioned the fitting out and crewing of this vessel, the Cacafuego, to go out and basically on behalf of the Spanish merchants, see if they could take or at least see off or deter the Sophie that was causing so much trouble in proportion to her diminutive size. But I've got a question for you, Mike. Um, Lots of people said that uh, Master and Commander was written as kind of a one-off, you might say, like the pilot of a TV series, and that turning to pick up and write post-captain was the moment where Patrick O'Brien began to plot a sort of genuinely multi-novel arc, and that it was therefore the beginning of something new. What do you think about that idea? Well, it's interesting. There is a bit of this introduction of of Aubrey and Matron, and we've got Captain Hart and Molly Hart, but I can't imagine a one-off novel ending with this captain, you know, busting his head 
as he hears the sentence read out as his own court martial, and that's it. You know, we we have that beautiful thing that you talked about with his sword being returned and how his honor is yeah. such that it has always been returned by enemy and by his colleagues alike. But I just can't imagine that if he did not have something else in mind, he would have ended it quite on that note. Yeah, I'm I'm with you as well. I mean, yeah, every writer of a successful TV pilot writes a bit of a cliffhanger at the end, but I think it's bigger than that, isn't it? The oh yeah, you know, he clearly set these characters up with 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 developments in mind and with particularly, you know, there there were rich veins of characterization and humor and and, and relationships ashore that I think he was he was playing, as they might say in America, he was playing some pretty long ball even when he uh, even when he wrote Master and Commander. No doubt about so it. Overall. So overall, Mike, big picture time. How did you enjoy Post Captain compared to Master and Commander? Well, it's interesting because I almost felt like, I mean, when I read Master and Commander again, I thought, gosh, I remember why I love Patrick O'Brien so much. I remember why I love Aubrey and Matron and the relationship. I remember why I love the series so much. And then I reread Post Captain and went, oh my gosh, there's so much more. So here it is, everything promised and I think delivered in Master Commander, but delivered maybe 10x in Post Captain. Right. Oh, wow. That's, a bit, that's, uh, that's going pretty high. I've got to say, too, if you'd asked me before we sat down to start this podcast, which is my favorite, I would have said Post Captain. Nice. But I, I think that I'm digging so deep as we do the reread that I think I might be appraising some of their later books as well. But anyhow, post captain for me, it's it's longer than master and commander, and I think we're in for a really big kind of meaty story. Um, interestingly, one of the great things that we've started to see on the podcast is we get some feedback from our listeners. One of our friends, Pete, got in touch to say that he was glad that we're not racing through kind of a book at a time, a book at an episode. Partly, he said to me that uh, he's got two that he's already planning to read that he's holding in reserve for holidays in the future. So, a thanks for the comment, Pete, and B. We're going to try and avoid critical spoilers for you for later on. And rest assured, post-captain's a meaty story. So I think we're going to take our time over this one. So Pete, without giving away any uh, any of these spoilers going ahead, I, I wanted to dig back for just a second, Ian, to Master and Commander and say that I not only listened to it, which is, is kind of my preferred way of doing it, but I went back and reread it as well. And one of the things that came up for me is, is it's it's great to listen to. It's great to read. And it's wonderful to do both because I realized that I missed a number of things in Master and Commander by only listening. Uh, one of which oh, was right. what what I thought was a, you know, Patrick O'Brien's take on the banking system. Um, he's in a scene <laughs> yeah, in, in a scene there in Master and Commander. He's, he's sort of taken the midshipmen to task and he's told them, you know, when When's the last time you wrote your families? I, I need you to remind your parents that my bankers are whores. And I thought, wow, that's a that's quite the uh, thing to Pretty say, you know. And he he shouted it twice, and he's he's kind of dictating to them on the deck of the ship. But when I read the book, it was like it was H O A R E S with a capital H, and I thought. What does that mean? So I looked it up and realized this is the oldest private banking establishment in England. All my bankers are whores. <laughs> no, you know, I think it's just for me another one of Patrick O'Brien's <laughs> wonderful jokes. So, so now I've got to right. do post captain both ways and see what else I missed. 
<laughs> Excellent. Well, that's an interesting thing that we should think about in, in more depth. The the pleasure of going through any favorite book series, but these books in particular, um, on the, as written words on the page, either on the paper or on a Kindle, versus the pleasure of hearing them being characterized by a reader. So if you're out there in, re, in, in listener land and you've got a point of view, do you like the Kindle? Do you like turning the pages? Do you value that kind of back and forth? Or are you one of us who likes the audiobook experience where you can let it wash over and enjoy the, the kind of the vocal characterizations and the storytelling skill of the narrator? Tell us what you like. Tell us why you like it. And uh, maybe we can explore that some more as we go through some more of these podcasts. That would be neat. Ian, for you know, for the folks who are sort of saying, so where are we as we start back here in post-captain? You know, you just did a really nice job wrapping up the end of Master and Commander, but you know, where are we in time? Where are we in history? What's going on? Good question. So I'm 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 gonna make a spoiler for chapter one, and I'm gonna say that um the, the key action of chapter one is that taking a ride in a ship home in uh, around March 1802. The big discovery um, for Stephen and Jack is that the war's over. This particular bout of the Napoleonic Revolutionary Wars is over. The Peace of Amiens has been signed. The Peace of Amiens, as all us history nerds are going to know, was the 25th of March, 1802. So that kind of raises a bit of a question. If you also know your naval history, you know that they were in, in and around Gibraltar for the Second Battle of Algeciras, which was in the real world in July 1801. I wonder what they were doing ashore for, what, eight or nine months between the court-martial at the end of Battle of Algeciras and uh, and the Peace of Amiens being signed in 1802. But I, th- I think we can give, forgive O'Brien for a month or two here and there, given how hard he has to work to step around the realities of history later on. I think uh, I think he does okay. But now, this is a fiction. The O'Brien's universe in some places, going to have to have a very different timeline from the real one. I think he mentioned in one of his books in the, in one of the introductions that, you know, he had to use the year 1812 many, many times over. <laughs> That's right. So here's where they are. Maturin and Aubrey on the way home. Peace has broken out. And we get this opening episode of them taking lodgings um, in a nice country house. They get to be young bachelor squires. And Mike, this just struck me as like we've landed in the opening chapter of a lighthearted version of a Jane Austen novel. Well, it's it's so true. I mean, you've got all these men sort of keeping house, you know, all these sailors together. But the the real action that starts up here isn't just in Stephen and Jack's house. We go down the lane right. a bit. Um, you know, we're welcomed to a house there. And in the opening passages, it's kind of like we are we are absolutely in a Jane Austen novel here. So what we are brought into direct contact with the female world, although, as I understand it, you know, Jane Austen never wrote direct dialogue between men alone speaking together because she said, you know, I never experienced that. So I wouldn't do that. So Patrick O'Brien sort of uh, dares to tread where Jane Austen hasn't and takes us right into this bourgeois, you know, petulant, anxious, privileged, shrewish kind of romantic marriage obsessed female world of the day with uh, Mrs. Williams and all of her daughters and their cousin, Diana. And we're introduced to three really colorful and very different female lead characters, Mrs. Williams, Sophie and Diana. Um, And O'Brien uses their point of view 
to show us some of the early days and weeks of Jack Aubrey and Stephen's lives of Shore. We even get an admiral, a 19th century comedy surname uh, that is going to give admiral us- Admiral Haddock, uh, right. Yeah, Admiral Haddock. <laughs> so you, you know, we're going to get this seagoing admiral with a name like that, having a little fun- who's kind of lives locally and can give the girls a little background on their two new neighbors. Right. And it's not entirely complimentary. He passes on very, very indirectly the fact that Jack Aubrey's got a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a rake and that Stephen Maturin's parentage is a bit uncertain. But once they're established as callable, clubbable, visitable members of the middle class. You know, there's there's, there's excitement and the, the females are thinking, well, there are potential husbands here and there's a, a social life that we might be able to, to delve into. We might get to talk later on about kind of the coverage of the female characters generally because having written about females a little bit in passing in the first book, and certainly the, the one major female character in the first book, Molly Hart, Jack's mistress, is portrayed as you know, beautiful, but also a manipulator of Jack and of other men, um, you know, portrayed in, in juxtaposition with the description mm. of a of a praying mantis, you know, eating, you know, eating the head off of her mate. Um, we've got actual more grounded, more real, more kind of in, interesting female characters, I think. I've got no idea what anybody would say if they analyze the gender politics of this writing. But for me, you know, we, we've got women doing, even though they're doing kind of Jane Austen era you know, striving for romance and marriage and financial independence. They're doing it in nuanced and different ways. And I'm I'm really happy that we've got some proper female characters to talk about in amongst all the kind of testosterone that was around at the end of Master and Commander. Too true. And some, some very independent uh, female characters and characters who are going to have their own way, although do it in a way that, you know, some more against prevailing norms in the system and others within it, but still independent and and uh headstrong and it's it was really i enjoyed reading that yeah absolutely i think i think headstrong is probably the word that you get in a dictionary when you look up mrs williams you know <laughs> she's a real a real force of nature the mother of sophie so we've got men in a rented squire's country house we've got women in the neighborhood who are interested in bringing them into the social circle we've got another species that plays a part in the storytelling earlier on that that's horses so, Mike, you've got a point of view about horses. Um, what was the first time that we met We met horses as part of the life of these characters? I can't remember. Well, I, I think it's it's in that, you know, one of the early fox hunts that uh, Jack, even when oh. Jack was looking at renting a place, was saying, ah, oh, you know, here's a great place up in Sussex, and, you know, there'll be some great fox hunting there. Oh, I'd love to have myself a hunter. And he's he's thinking about the horse he can have and 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 to go fox hunting out there, and interestingly, you know, in this first scene, so we've got uh, a, a, one of the women who rides in, and you know, is there's a great description of her and her character and how she turns all the heads, particularly the way she is right. with her horse and on her horse, and we've got Stephen Matron, who's as as I recall, is riding an ass, and you know. It's it's just so to me. I can see, you know, Captain Aubrey on this huge hunter horse, and and Stephen kind of almost you know in a lounge chair of of a donkey there, um, you know, being about his natural history business. And from there, we've just got all kinds of horse examples, as well as 
this horse's stream of consciousness scene. Oh yeah, we go inside the the mind of the horse. That was funny. Yeah, uh, you know the the horse is saying. You know, he's thinking about Jack up there, too heavy, sits too far forward. And when we go over a fence, I've, I've carried him far enough for one day. I shall have him off presently. See if I don't. Oh, a mare. I smell a mare. A mare. Oh. <laughs> and so, you know, we mentioned last time about uh, Patrick O'Brien's penchant for bringing minor characters into play and, and getting a little depth here. Now, you know, Diana sitting her horse with the unconscious grace of a midshipman at the tiller at a lively sea. And this this horse, in the case of the ladies, has been a bribe from Mrs. Williams to say, my daughter Sophie, I think, would be a great match for Captain Aubrey. And I want you to leave the captain alone, Diana. Here's a horse for you. Go play with the horse. So we're getting the horses used as a way of signaling the kind of intentions and the status of the characters. And we're getting the horses playing a role in you know, disturbing or undercutting the action of the story as well. I think it's great. Do you, do you think he's got an authentic take on the mentality of a of a male hunter horse? Do you think that's from what you from, from your own personal experience of horses, Mike? I think he's onto something there. Having watched the uh, tale of more than one how, uh, horse as I went down over the back, I, I think he had a great take on that horse. <laughs> Brilliant. And and sure enough, if, you know, I don't think it was. I think it was just later in the chapter. Uh, Jack cleared a fence, lost his balance just a little bit, and the horse said, "Yeah, that's it." Shifted just a little bit, and then drug him along in the stirrup. So we've got this kind of like like we said, sort of micro Jane Austen world where these two naval action hero types have landed in this world where they're, to be honest, they're they're a bit out of place, right? That things are unfamiliar. They're finding their way. The, the the manners and the kind of mores of the of the local women folk are a bit of a mystery. Like the the wine's not great at dinner. They've got no notion of how much pudding to serve. But right. you know they're they're quite happy to go along because the the female company is attractive. And it's funny we don't get the flirtation played out at great length the way that you might in a sort of a more traditional romantic novel. So we pretty much in in a paragraph or two. We get that you know, Mrs. Williams has decided that Jack is the one for Sophie, and you know mm. Sophie is keen on Jack as well. And she just goes to the library and educates herself. <laughs> well, it it is interesting. So you've got you know Mrs. Williams has asked Diana to clear the field. Um, Sophie, as you say, has gone to the Admiral's library to learn about all the, all these nautical terms and to make herself a little more interesting, only to find out that Diana was there before her. And Diana taunts right. her a little bit as she sees Sophie on the way to the library saying, hello there, shipmate. Oh, yeah. She's kind of taking a bit of a rise out of Sophie. Yeah. And, well, then we quickly get into this. There's this kind of easy bantering conversation between Stephen Maturin and Diana Villiers. And I remember as I read it, thinking, ah, okay, things are going to fall into place. You know, um, kind of beautiful, gentle, kind, sympathetic Sophie is going to be the one for blustering hero Jack Aubrey and kind of quirky, whip-smart, independently brainy Diana is going to be the one for kind of, you know, independent philosopher-minded Stephen Matcher. And they have these quite quite bantering, quite candid conversations, and it's it's funny. But I still get the sense that, you know, we're, we're meant to, to pick up that Diana's really not going to be that faithful. And for all she likes the banter with Stephen she's still going to have the capacity to do him some emotional damage. Yeah. And that's, it's a, it's a very, I don't know, for me, it's a, it's a very scary thought because, you know, we didn't, we, we had Jack with women in master and commander, but 
I thought back, you know, there were no women, you know, involved with Stephen Matron. And then it occurred to me that at the, I believe at the very beginning of Master and Commander, you know, as Stephen is waking up from a dream on that first glorious morning when all the main, you know, protagonists of, of the first book are coming together, you know, Dylan and Aubrey and Matron and, and O'Brien does such a nice job of having, you know, what happened that first, that, that morning as they each woke up. Matron's coming out of this dream of this girl that he obviously loved that apparently broke his heart. And, um, you know, you, you get that reference, but it's so, you know, it's so quick. And then we go sort of the rest of the book and, and here we have, you know, there's that, I, I don't know if you wanted to share it, Stephen, that, that I thought was incredibly funny, uh, an interesting scene between Diana Villers and Stephen Matron kind of, you know, their first interchange together after having met, I guess, the day before. Oh, so so he's, he's teasing her about being late. And she says, that, that's the one advantage in being a woman. You do know that I'm a woman, don't you, Maturin? <laughs> and then he goes on, is that the one? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, and, and he, I think he's allowed to play his kind of, the, the, the banter comes with a little hint of his physician's kind of scientific detachment. And he can say, you know, what, why should the trifling accident of sex um, induce a sentient being, let alone a smart one like you, to waste this beautiful morning, and I can't conceive why. You know, help me, let me get you help. Let, come, let me help you get up on the horse. And he keeps using this word sex, sex, under his breath over again. And she's horrified because she knows that he means it one way, but that the social bourgeoisie around them in the uh, in the English countryside aren't going to pick it up quite like that. And she says, hush, Matron, don't use words like that around here. It was bad enough yesterday. And he says, what do you mean yesterday? Oh, that's right. I'm I'm not the first man to say that wit is the unexpected copulation of ideas. You know, far from it. It's a commonplace. And Diana says, yes. But as far as my aunt is concerned, you are the first man who's ever used that expression in public. <laughs> so I think they're, they're enjoying each other's company, right? It probably slightly, they're both being slightly dishonest with each other. You know, maybe Matron's, like some of us does, is using humor to defend the, the, mm. the part of his character that was, as you say, harmed by that first relationship. And maybe she wants to play the part of being a kind of independent and lively and courageous woman, but she's perhaps not so lively and not so courageous. We're going to take a short break, so if you would just stand off and on on the coastline there, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Um, I want to just talk about how Di- Diana seems equipped to put men down as well. She's got this great skill, sometimes in a positive and funny way, but also sometimes in quite a damaging way to take command of a situation. And by the way, this gives me the chance to mention what is, I think, a world-class fart joke. Congratulations <laughs> to Patrick O'Brien. Yeah, Diana's being taken back from her cousin's house to go to the ball at Melbury Lodge. And uh, 
the midshipman Babington is a bit anxious and his driving's a bit wild. So she calms him down and to kind of put him in his place. Um, she takes advantage of the moment when this bean fed horse emits a thunderous long, long fart. And Babington says, I beg your pardon into the silence. And she says, Oh, that's all right. I thought it was the horse, <laughs> which is like, you know, that's like a, that, that's a Christmas dad joke, right? But it's kind of played by Patrick <laughs> O'Brien into the, you know, into the mouth of uh, of Diana, and she's using it absolutely as a put down to say, "Don't worry, young man, I've got this. You sit down over there and worry about the farting horse." Yeah, and this, you know, this ball that they're headed to, um, you know, it yeah. it comes off really well. It, it's funny. I think earlier when uh, it was given to the Williams household on best authority that there was no, n- you know, no women at all in the household with Aubrey and Matron, that it was all men and sailors. And, you know, Mrs. Williams say, well, I, I should like to take my white glove over there. I can't imagine it, but they go to the ball. Everything is clean. Everything is ship shape, of course. And, um, it's a great success. They've got all these other naval friends that are in who've kind of landed on shore after the war close by. But it, it hurt me a, a bit because in the midst of that, Stephen suffers, you know, one of Diana's crushing blows is she kind of lists off yeah. the hopes that she has for her attributes of an ideal man. Um, Stephen seems to be kind of engaging her in conversation She's she's certainly engaged Stephen in a lot of conversation and he kind of saying, you know, well, you know, what's the beast that you're stalking? And all of them, uh, all of them are not at all Stephen Matron. Uh, and and yeah. he, he I, I think he scores that up quite quickly. And it, it's interesting. Uh, we get more of Diana's backstory. She's widowed, um, you know, has had a bit of a tough time to it. She's kind of left here stuck with her her cousins and her aunt. Um, but she just humiliates Stephen and seems to think nothing of it. Um, and he seems to have very little at his disposal to protect himself from the heartbreak. Um, he says, you know, I'm adverse to giving pain, Villers, which you are not. And it's kind of a, a little, wow, you know, perhaps shape of things to come here. Yeah, absolutely. And shape of her character. It's clever how like O'Brien set us up to see her as, you know, sort of an engaging and sympathetic character. You know, if you're looking for a strong independent female character who has, you know, kind of has her own mind, then she's absolutely it. And I remember reading that thinking, yeah, this is kind of a, you know, a, a late 20th century woman deposited in a way in the characters of a 19th century story, mm-hmm. but she's not just kind of, you know, independence and courage and wit. She's, she knows she has the ability to wound and and I don't know whether she can't stop herself or whether it's just part of the way that she kind of kind of goes on her way through the world but she's finds it so easy just to kind of inflict these great wounds on Stephen and I, I guess we're going to see on other people as well yeah well and you know we've now been on land for a good while and it, it seems to often be Patrick O'Brien's style to say things go well at sea and and they get a little bit dicey on land. Uh, is that holding up they in do, this book they? as well, Ian? Yeah, I think so. It's funny, I noticed as well, not only do things go badly on land, things go badly at parties on land. Right? We know <laughs> that at sea, right? O'Brien loves a meal and he loves to list off the menu and he loves to kind of talk about the songs that they sing and the jokes that they tell. 
But when they're ashore, parties seem to be kind of stricken by this slightly uptight, uptight, slightly sarcastic, slightly passive aggressive kind of competition between people to kind of kind of flaunt their opinions in the case of kind of, you know, small minded bourgeois people who express opinions about, you know, slavery or poverty or whatever. And then the willingness of our heroes and particularly Stephen Maturin to kind of try and put these people down by sabotaging them. There's all this kind of ill-concealed hostility and kind of competitiveness at dinner parties. And I don't know. I, I, I don't think that happens at many of my dinner parties. I don't know about yours, Mike. I, I think if it happened quite as often as it does here, I'd stop going to them. Right. But yeah, absolutely. Although it, it is interesting that sometimes, and, and Stephen and Jack together do this so well that I think the people who are being had don't even realize it. That's... Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure. Um, there's the time, isn't there, when uh, at the at the ball, um, Stephen is talking away. No, it's at the at, at Queenie's party in London. Stephen's talking away to Mrs. Williams, Sophie's mother. Um, and she's just discovered that he's a landowner in Spain, and this is kind of a big deal. And right. she's going, "Oh, I didn't realize you were a man of property." And you know, tell me about tell me about rack rent. Tell me about your tenant role. And he kind of plays her right along and says, "Oh yeah, the rack. Yeah, we have the rack. We we use it for extracting rent from tenants, and we find that the, you know the more we torture them, the more they pay." Right. And she's nodding along, going, "Oh yes, very very sensible way of getting control of your tenants." No, it, it so shows- I think it's Patrick O'Brien having fun through the character of Stephen, right? Yeah, yeah. In in um, you know, there's uh a, a scene where um some friends of Molly Hart and Captain Hart would like to have their son become a midshipman on Jack's boat. Jack's ship, sorry. Right. Oh what a what a <laughs> oops. The one ship, not a boat. It's a ship. The uh and and they're talking about, you know, there's there's also uh I guess this is back in Master and Commander, but they're talking about how important discipline is discipline and you know, how do they find that? And, you know, they ask Stephen about, you know, being a physician at sea, and he says, Well, I find that the oil of cat answers, you know, that they they would tie them to the cat and whip them and they'll get over their maladies. And Jack said, Oh, yes, you know, he's a very firm disciplinarian. And the fact of the matter is, they're nothing at all like this. But everybody at the party is just saying, Yes, yes, yes. You know, we love discipline. <laughs> oh, dear me. And that's the, that's the great argument that uh, Stephen and, uh, and Jack are going to have all the way through their careers. You know, how, how far do you go with discipline and how, what damaging effect does it have if somebody, you know, takes off? Yeah, and and there it's, it's interesting because they are, you know, so much, both of them, you know, Stephen certainly much further, but even Jack himself of a mind that seems contrary to the times that says, you know, Jack yeah. believes in a happy ship, a disciplined ship, but a happy ship and not, uh, you know, an extremely harsh and punishing ship, which we saw, you know, we see play in in this book as well. So I, I want to pick up the fact that we, we get a couple of turns for the worse. And I think there's a sort of ge- general turn for the worse and then a series of personal turns for the worse that really ratchet up the tension here. Yeah. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, that they, Sophie captured the Cacafuego at the end of the previous book and um, Jack and Stephen are in funds and they got all this prize money coming in. And Jack gets the really unexpected news that his prize agent has, has defrauded him of all of this money. The prize agent has, a, you know, absconded with all of this cash, and the Cacafuego that Jack believed he had captured as a lawful prize, that judgment's been overturned in court. He actually has to hand back to the state the eleven thousand pounds that his prize agent 
had had taken on his behalf, but the prize agent's gone. So the state needs its £11,000 back and the prize agent's away in the hills. So he's left potentially, you know, £11,000 in debt and penniless and life pivots from fiddler's green, as he would say, you know, happy days on shore to real, real uncertainty again. And, you know, it's amazing how he just, in it, again, in this very matter-of-fact way, the whole story turns in an instant, and all of a sudden Stephen and Jack have got to up sticks. They've got to abandon the social life that they got with the Williams girls and with Diana Villiers, and they've got to abandon Melbury Lodge, and they've got to abandon the horses and the parties, and they've got to get out of there. Yeah, it really is sad. And and to watch this kind of perhaps a little bit more in that Jane Austen fashion that, you know, he goes from the plum to completely undesirable, knew he was undesirable, the way he holds his mouth, you know, he's just completely sold out by uh, by Mrs. Williams and, and by some yeah. of society at the same time. You know, he was yeah. lucky Jack Aubrey, the talk of the Navy, yeah. talk of the neighborhood. And in now, it, it, Stephen, it was fascinating, warns him, says, you know, all right, Jack, don't say a word of this to anyone, I beg you. And and Jack, who Stephen says, you know, really just doesn't understand about women, didn't have a sister, <laughs> mother died when he was young, just confides this to Sophie. And from there, boom, Mrs. Williams kind of uses her conniving means to get this out of Sophie and Jack is just you know he's not only on his lee shore with the news but certainly on his lee shore as this news gets spread widely now I I think there's still there's one crumb of comfort from this financial disaster which is that that is then going to take them away from being near Diana Villiers and I think we were already seeing signs that besides Stephen having this kind of on again off again relationship with Diana Villiers um, Jack's romantic eye has not entirely settled on Sophie, and he still has quite a fancy f- for Diana Villiers, and that was beginning to get in the way. I was, you know, I found it really sad when you can kind of see the small scale ways in which they're starting to lie to each other or be a bit evasive yeah. about their connections with Diana Villiers. But having to flee the country in debt at least puts them both back into action. And you know, Stephen Matcherin is clearly willing to step back into being a really supportive and close and loyal friend when he sees his 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 uh his friend Jack sent so low by this this bad news about the about the prize money but really Stephen has kind of looked at this irreconcilable uh, triangle between he and Jack and Diana and I think Stephen you know thinks about taking himself out of the picture just to say yeah. okay you know I'm going to just leave the field and uh seeing though that Jack is in trouble he jumps in to save the day once again, as Stephen has a tendency to do. And I, God, I love him for it. So we have a bit of a change of scene as they've had to flee the country in debt. Good news is Stephen has property in, in Spain, in Catalonia. So they're on the way via the south of France to go visit Spain, still in peacetime, as we are for the moment. And first of all, I, I really enjoyed the fact that they meet back up with Captain Christy Pallier. They kind of call in on this captain who captured them but treated them so well and they're having this really enjoyable French meal and we have a little bit of kind of funny French dialogue. Um, but even this meal, like again, one of O'Brien's favourite set pieces, is upended by the news that war has been declared. And the Peace of Amiens is, the following day is going to break down, war is going to break out between England and France. And once again, 
Stephen and Jack have to flee this time fleeing from potential imprisonment as as prisoners of war. Yeah, and we it's funny without trying to do any spoilers here, I think we're learning a lot more about Stephen, you know, so much right. more about first of all going going to his property in Spain that he's a property gentleman and this whole idea about how we find out that war is in the offering what Stephen's doing, you know, it always seems like Jack's kind of leading the way, but we're seeing more and more that Stephen knows a lot about what's going on, uh, sometimes more than Jack and has his own, there's a, I, I don't even know how to get into it here that, you know, one of the things as, as Jack first sees Christy Pellier, um, I, I think Stephen is not with him and Christy Pellier you know, reports this description of a spy who's been overlooking yeah their harbor and ships and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, Jack thinks it's just hilarious that this description matches Stephen. He says, oh, no, that's Stephen looking at birds. You've got to be kidding me. Um, And he's able to do it so sincerely that the French people are going, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that sounds plausible. He's just a a naturalist. Okay. Absolutely. And one of the things I also love with uh, Christy Pellier and Jack is – how much they enjoy each other's company and and how honorable and kind and friendly they are you know i i you know, christian Pellier has said you know loved having you as my prisoner because when i was you know the english uh, an english prisoner i was treated so well and i wanted to return the courtesy and uh, you know he has cousins in bath and jack has been to visit the cousins and you know, as, as you kind of look at today's partisanship and what's going on all around the world and you say, oh, my gosh, here are two guys who were at war, who are about to be at war and and are having candid conversations about, you know, their allegiances, their likes and dislikes about yeah. their respective governments and stuff like that, but have so much that they appreciate and admire in one another. And I thought, wow. This is yeah. this is heartwarming at any time, and uh, certainly I'm, I I feel completely true to that time, and we could use a little bit more of it today. Yeah, I think we could. I think we could, and I, I love as well the fact that there's, he's making quite a nuanced point about the difference between loyalty uh, to a culture or to a to a sort of a national identity versus loyalty to a regime. And uh, you know, Maturin's going to say this many many times in later books that he loves. The French people, he counts himself as part French. He can pass for a Frenchman in the way that he speaks. Um, he thinks Paris is the greatest city in the world, but he can't abide the way that the French state under Bonaparte goes about his business. And that's what he has an issue with. And that's his motivation to play yes. his part in the conflict. And Yeah, well put. Right. So to, to, to carry on talking about their escapades, now that they've moved on from dinner with Christy Pallier and they're uh, potentially under threat of pursuit and imprisonment again. Um, they're passing along southern France. And I've no idea where O'Brien got the idea from, pr- presumably from a source, because that's where he got so many of his great ideas. Aubrey is dressed in a bear skin and somehow managed to convince the world that the bear is a bear and Stephen is the bear keeper kind of traveling from circus to circus and from marketplace to marketplace gathering groats from people in return for seeing the bear dance. And, you know, the idea of an English naval captain in a bear skin dancing is, is, is comic gold, and he plays it really, really well. And, you know, there's a really stupid gendarme who insists on seeing the bear 
dance because of course why why would lead bear not be dancing oh okay he even accepts the the excuse that there's there's a there's a there's a lady's malady that stops this particular female bear from performing very many steps at this particular moment he goes yeah okay well, fair enough so let me see and and jack dances a few steps of a hornpipe and everybody's happy with the idea that this bear is really a bear and you know we must be in the backwater of people who've never seen a bear before and are relatively uneducated and Stephen and jack are able somehow to bluff their way through in this bear costume well, and to me on the reread, I had completely forgotten about this. And, you know, I think oh, it's, really? a, oh, it was so, it just blew me away because I thought, who? I mean, O'Brien has this great way of, of viewing it from other people's point of view and these, you know, wildly unique points of view. And all of a sudden we have this guy and his bear and we go a long way before we find out who the guy and his bear are. And I'm scratching yeah. my head going, where is this going? And you know, this is yeah. this is when you get to be a certain age. You you know you get to reread books over and over again and be completely surprised by them. But the um, yeah. you know it's just so incredibly well done. And then it's like oh my gosh, it's Jack and Stephen. So not only uh, to your point did Jack and Stephen somehow pull it off, but Patrick O'Brien in my mind pulled it off quite well as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And he also uses the device of the bear. You know, maybe part of you in the back of your mind is thinking, yeah, geez, yeah, summer in, in, in southwestern France in a bearskin, that's going to be uncomfortable. But actually, we realize the bearskin is a, a torture for Jack. He has yes. to spend all day in this revolting, smelly, you know, parasite-infested, filthy, greasy bear costume, and he can't get out of it. And he's got to travel through, you know, weather and up hills and streams and Stephen's looking after him really sort of tenderly and the, the the bear costume in another context is just like this thing that tortures Jack and makes his final journey from you know into the freedom of Spain just so so agonizing and so slow and every step is pain for him. Yes, Stephen counseled him in Master and Commander not to run too fast on the beach in a cutting out expedition because of men of his size and he's just <laughs> losing correct. you know incredible amounts of weight journeying hundreds of miles up mountainsides and 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 true patrick o'brien way the impact on jack um you know we don't learn for some time you know it, it continues to get peeled away like an onion in different points of view in different conversations to what actually happens as stephen has whisked jack away from all the creditors of england and to through uh, war torn now Spain and into the relative safety of Catalonia with Stephen. And for Stephen, this is home. We don't ever see or hear very much of him relating to the people in the in the area. Yes. We don't hear of any of his no members of his household. But clearly, this is a journey to safety for Stephen. But for Jack, this is like he's never been to Spain before. He's never been through Ooh. a forest on the Franco-Spanish-Spanish border before. He's certainly never been in a bear costume before. So he's placing a lot of himself in the hands of his friend Stephen. Absolutely. And he's seeing Stephen, you know, through new eyes, literally through the bear costume, uh, through the, you know, through the collar around the neck of the bear costume. But he's also seeing him new eyes to say, wait a minute, Stephen's got this all under control. Stephen is planning this out. Stephen yeah. is being really ingenious in the way he's getting them through and how he's gathering intelligence about what to do and and the way Stephen can make sense of whether it's safe or not safe and why they can or can't do certain things. I think Jax, who has already had phenomenal esteem for Stephen, 
you know, that esteem has risen even higher. And, and he really sees him in new ways, in addition to the great ways that he's seen him in the past. Anyway, so I, I think this is a key moment. This is an end of the first act. We've got Jack and Stephen really mired in complex relationships with women and also with their friendship on an uneven keel. We've yes. got Jack, his career's on the rocks. Is he going to go a really undesirable kind of low-rated ship from the Admiralty just for the sake of getting to sea to avoid his debtors? What's really going on with Maturin and how, what are these other background interests that he's going to pursue? I think there's a lot for us still to talk about in post-captain and i think maybe that's where we'll pick it up next time what do you say oh i think it's a great idea and and there's a whole war in front of us and what part is jack gonna play in because we you know we haven't gotten that you know this book is broken out with peace oh my gosh how can we have a historical naval fiction broken out in peace absolutely so we're going to pick this up in episode four we really hope that you've enjoyed episode three if you're enjoying this podcast please subscribe review us we're on itunes um share tell your friends get in touch with us as well we've got the facebook page facebook.com forward slash lovers hole um ask questions tell us what you want to hear us talking about as we meander through the rest of post captain and as we move on into the rest of the aubrey maturin canon and while you're giving us that feedback, which we greatly appreciate. You know, we're thinking about inviting guests on the show. We'd love to know who would you like to hear as a guest on this podcast? If you're listening to this and you have something to say, you've got a perspective to bring here, would you like to join us as a guest? Please let us know. We're not proud. We'll make space. (laughs) Ah, 14 inches of hammock space, all we need for every guest. (laughs) And a tot of rum. Mike, I think that's our show. What do you say to next time? Maybe a little bit more Patrick O'Brien. Ah, with all my heart. That was fun.